Cynthia Dill. With me in the studio this morning is David Farmer, a political and media consultant and newspaper columnist for the Bangor Daily News. Welcome, David Farmer. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, I know a little bit about you because I've interviewed you on the radio, but for listeners, I thought I would just briefly um, summarize what I believe to be your background. Born in Virginia, correct? Yep. And a Portland resident since 2002. That's correct. And you were a journalist for 17 years at the Sun Journal in Lewiston? That's where I finished up my journalism career. But I actually was a journalist in Virginia, Maryland, Washington, D.C., before we moved to Maine in 2002. Okay, wow. That's that. Um, that's a lot of experience. Um, and you currently work at, well, you um, worked in the Baldacci administration in pretty high-level position there. Is that true? Yeah, I was, uh, de- when we left, I was deputy chief of staff and communications director. And you currently work as a uh, political and media consultant as well as a newspaper columnist for the Bangor Daily News. That's right. Uh, the, the newspaper column is really, as you know, is more of a hobby than, than work, although it's, it takes work. It, it's really uh, keeps, let me keep a little bit of a foot in journalism, even though I'm not a journalist anymore. Well, um, as a political consultant, the year of a presidential election must be like the Olympics. Is that fair? It is a fun time to watch. Now, I'm not uh, currently working on any of the, any of the presidential campaigns, uh, but it is a great race to watch, a very important race with a lot of great candidates. And uh, it's, it's nice to have a front row seat for that, especially, you know, we're so close to New Hampshire, so we get some trickle over of candidates up here occasionally. So what are some of the most coveted jobs in the field of political consulting, like for the, in a presidential election? What are the, the sweet jobs? Oh, that? gosh. Well, I guess, you know, the, the money that flows through the media consultants, the folks who make the TV ads and, um, and place those, you know, that's where the money is. Um, you know, those, those firms can make 12, 13, 14, 15% of, of an advertising buy uh, in addition to recouping their their production charges. Uh, now, are these people who actually produce the ads, or yes. is it the people who just like the brokers of the ad Well, deals? so you, you, what you tend to do is you hire a, a, a media consultant, and they help you uh, develop your scripts, produce the ads, and then handle the, the buying and placement as well. And they get a percentage of They get a percentage of, the, of the, the cost of the buy. So a million-dollar television buy might actually be 850000 depending on... Um, the percentage that the that the production company takes. Now, if someone has political aspirations themselves, but are working, or what are the coveted jobs in a campaign if you want to kind of move up and, and be a part of the political life? Oh, gosh. You know, that's a tougher question, right? Because being a candidate and being a staffer for a candidate are very different things. They, they, it's a different skill set. Um, you know, when you are a staffer for someone, your job is to support them. You, you become subsumed by them. You know, your job is not to have a voice of your own, but to, to magnify their voice, at least externally. Now, we see cases where staffers um, build successful political careers uh, on their own. Uh, it happens frequently. Uh, Steve Abbott, who's uh, Senator Susan Collins' chief of staff, ran for governor himself uh, back in, I believe it was 2010. So you see folks uh, try to, to take that leap, but it really is a different personality and skill set. Now you're generally associated, you are associated with the Democratic Party uh, because you work closely with Governor Baldacci, as we discussed, um, and you were also a senior advisor to Democrat Mike Michaud's campaign for governor, and you've worked for several 
uh, campaigns, left-leaning Democratic-type campaigns. Um, my question relates to your work as a media consultant. Mm-hmm. Uh, what You sort of described media consultancy already, but my question is, is media consultancy done on a partisan basis? Yes. Okay. Now, not, not entirely. There are examples of folks who will cross, but when you, um, and uh, the, the best example would be if you take someone like uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who is running for president as a Democrat, he's been an independent, he's been a Republican. You know, there are Democratic firms that are working for him. Or if you look at Elliot Cutler, who ran in Maine for governor, you know, he was mostly using Democratic consultants. But you would rarely see, if ever, a Democratic polling firm, media firm, or direct mail firm working for a Republican. It is very tribal in that way. Yeah, why? Um, Why? Because you pick a team. It's your values that you're talking about. When you work for a candidate, you're aligning yourself with them. So if you disagree about issues, whether it is something like uh, abortion or foreign policy or health care, um, you know, you can't switch back and forth from those positions. So would you do media consulting work for like a staunch Republican client? No. Now, how does your experience as a journalist inform your work as a media consultant and, and advising clients about media matters? Well, I mean, I think that having been a journalist for 17 years, uh, having worked in that environment, understanding the pressures and the deadlines, the the business constraints, you know, the way the business works, I think it helps me help clients anticipate um, what they're likely to face, whether it is in uh, an interview or the way that the media will cover uh, a particular set of circumstances. Now, there's been a massive media consolidation in Maine under Reed Brower, Masthead Maine, you know, gobbling up Maine Today Media, um, Sun Media Group, Alliance Media Group, Courier Publications, all of the websites. It's basically uh, Maine is a a two-shop state now in terms of a daily paper. There's your paper, the Bangor Mm -hmm. Daily News, and then there's all the Portland Press-Herald-type papers. Even the Bangor Daily News, where you work as a columnist, relies to some extent on the success of the Brower Empire because of the printing relationship. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how, in your opinion, does Maine's near media monopoly affect your job? First, I'm curious how it affects your job as a political and media consultant. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I think that you have to look at is that the press corps in Maine has, since I was a member of it, has gotten smaller. So when you think of that in terms of the way we go about our job, if you got a bad story from one reporter who covered your event, you had an opportunity uh, to recover with the coverage from others. And bad, of course, is subjective. You you know, you had an opportunity to have other people's eyes on it, so you might get different takes on it. Now, with fewer Republicans, or excuse me, fewer um, reporters covering the same events, there's simply one take. So you will see the, the sharing of information uh, from, that's done by a Press Herald reporter in all of their outlets. Main Public and the Bangor Daily News often share content. So the opportunities uh, for different voices is limited. But, you know, I'm a newspaper junkie, and I subscribe to, I think, most of the papers in the state. Um, and, you know, the, I, I was concerned about that consolidation, but the quality of the reporting has not gone down. The investment in staff has held steady. Uh, The Portland Press-Herald, for example, despite the consolidation, um, shows a continuing commitment to long-form journalism, uh, to to deep dives, whether it's on opioids or the work of Colin Woodard. You know, so uh, 
the worst instincts of that or the worst fears of that have not been realized. But with the recent decision to stop publishing on Monday for several of the main today newspapers, you know, I worry about that. Does it mean fewer transactions in terms of people who are used to like selling things to the media and being media consultants? If it's if, if it's a massive media organization in terms of doing media consultancy, is it any different? No, I mean, it, no, I don't. It hasn't really changed the way that I interact with the press. Um, you know, when you are working on an issue that or on a campaign that's hot. Um, there's still a lot of coverage uh, you have to factor in, you know, also not just the newspapers, but the television stations, uh, main public broadcasting, which is, you know, does really good reporting, a robust news organization in the state and statewide. And then oftentimes, in addition to the coverage from here, we have bleed over coverage from uh, Portsmouth and from the Boston Globe. And then if you look at the United States Senate race this year, you know, we are going to, this The state is going to be, the folks working on that race are going to see coverage from the New York Times, Washington Post, Portico, Roll Call. You, you know, there's, there's going to be a large focus on the state this year. So I think, uh, I think I know what you're going to answer, or I anticipate your answer um, to this question, and that is, so does it matter to you that so many reporters in the state are paid by the same employer? And I guess the question is, is the elimination of competition among reporters, do you think it impacts the quality of the journalism? I, on paper, yes, but in practice, no. If you look at the reporters and the work that they do, the, the reporters who are in the state, um, especially the, if we're talking about the print reporters because you're talking about that consolidation, if you look at the political reporting core of people, they are extremely experienced. They have been here for a long time. Um, they don't always get it right, but they generally get it right. And even when they get it wrong, they're trying to get it right. And I, I don't see that influenced, uh, I don't see that influenced by ownership. You know, Reed had uh, a column recently that got a lot of attention about his interactions with Senator Collins, you know, about the civility and, and so forth. But I have not seen myself an impact on the way that Scott Thistle or Kevin Miller um, go about their reporting jobs, just to, or, or uh, just to, or Eric Russell, just to name a few of their reporters. Now, turning to impeachment, uh, the articles of impeachment against President Trump for abuse of power and obstruction of justice were delivered this week to the U.S. House of Representatives uh, by the House to the Senate. The senators were sworn in, and the trial is set to begin next week. Assuming the outcome of the trial is the acquittal of the president. What is there to gain for the Democrats by how the drama unfolds, by the show and the process? Well, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm not going to concede that point. Um, you know, if you look back to the impeachment of President Nixon, although the impeachment didn't actually happen, you know, but the, the process, it didn't look like it was a thing that was possible until all of a sudden it was possible and he was boarding Marine One and flying off into the sunset. As more and more information comes out, whether it's the GAO report that was released yesterday that says that withholding aid by the Trump administration was in fact illegal, whether it's new witnesses, new documents, new emails that continue to come out during the process. You know, I still have some faith that if you mount enough evidence that, um, that the majority of the United States Senate will take a look at that and, and may be able to put country over party. I think that's not 
the smart money, you know, but I don't give up hope. But the reason that the Democrats had to impeach is because they had to hold the president accountable. They have a constitutional obligation to do this. So whether the politics of it, you know, anybody who says that they can predict the politics of it is not being honest. I mean, we have guesses. Uh, but regardless of whether it ultimately helps the president or hurts him, members of the House had an obligation to say this is wrong, you've overstepped, and we're going to hold you accountable. Yes, I, I accept all of that. Um, but in terms of just now that it's going to be a drama that unfolds on national television and in all the newspapers, and we are in a presidential election mm -hmm. year, what, from a political standpoint, like it is a political process, so what could, what are the Democrats trying to do, other than obviously mount enough evidence to convict the president? That's mm -hmm. their goal. But what else is involved in terms of just the, 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 um, the look of it? the optics well, of think the what, process. What's important? I think what's bo what it boils down to is they're going to force senators, including vulnerable senators who are up for re-election, to make a decision and pick a side. And the politics of that, especially for the Republicans, are very hard. If you look at U.S. Senator Susan Collins in Maine, who's uh, up for re-election and perhaps the most vulnerable that she's ever been since her first election, she's going to have to decide how to navigate the impeachment, and ultimately whether to uh, believe her eyes and vote to convict or disregard that evidence and uh, vote to acquit. And there are consequences on both sides for her. And that is true not just in Maine, but for uh, vulnerable senators in Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina. They're all going to have to, to pick a side and make, you know, this is very important, there are bad consequences for them on both sides of that equation. Do you think that um, in the House vote, second congressional uh, representative, Golden, kind of split the baby? He voted yes on one article and no on the other. Do you think that there's um, a possibility that uh, there could be a vote split like that in the Senate for Senator Collins? I think there could be. I think there could be, but I, I would say this. Um, you know, I, I haven't talked to Representative Golden about his vote, but I read his, his statements. I read the op-ed that he wrote. And from my perspective from the outside, the only reason that you would vote like that is because it's what you actually believe, because the politics of it are terrible. You please no one. So if you're running for re-election this year, as, uh, as Senator Collins is, and you vote to convict on one charge and you vote to acquit on the other, Democrats and independents who look for a conviction are going to look at the vote to acquit and they're going to say, we can't count on you. And Republicans who would stand by Trump, apparently, uh, many of them, if he actually did shoot someone on, uh, on a street in New York, will look and see the, the vote to convict and will be upset. Do you believe that Senator Susan Collins of Maine that her re-election to the U.S. Senate will be something that she factors into her vote on whether to remove or acquit President Trump? I don't think there's any way that she couldn't take into account the politics of an election year. I mean, it's always in your mind, I think, when you're a candidate. How that influences her vote, I don't know, because again, there's no clear answer to me about what more what is more politically advantageous. What are you looking for in the impeachment trial personally? What do you hope to to see or hear or what do you what are you looking well, for? Well, I mean, I think the best outcome that we could all hope for is the truth and that the truth is broadcast widely and that the majority of Americans see it. But don't we 
it seems to me that we know what the truth is. And then the question just becomes whether or not in the judgment of the senators, what was done rises to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with me or do you think there's actually a dispute about the facts? I think that if you watch Fox News or you listen to the president or you live in what may be considered a conservative bubble of the information that you get, that, that reinforcing cycle of who your friends are and where you get your news and who you look, you know, who, silo. You, <laughs> who you follow on Facebook. I don't know that everyone has been exposed to the actual information. Um, there was a, I think it was The Daily Show did a gag where they went to a Trump rally where the big thing was read the transcript, right? And they asked people who were in line to get in, you know, what would you say to people? And they say, it's a hoax. Read the transcript. It was a perfect call. And they followed up by saying, well, did you read the transcript? <laughs> and they hadn't. You know, many right. of them haven't. Now, listen, those are set up, right? I mean, the, anybody who answered in a way that didn't make them look silly or wasn't funny probably didn't make the air. I think we can all recognize that. But I do believe that for a lot of people, they have not been exposed to the basic information. And there's value to that exposure, whether it changes their mind or not. Now, um, switching gears a little bit, do you care whether in 2018, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont said to Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts that he did not think a woman could win the presidency? I think that the question here is that it's likely that both people are telling the truth and that they remember it differently because of their the, the place where they're coming from. You know, um, if you're Elizabeth Warren, a general conversation about the sexism in politics in the United States and what had been done to Hillary Clinton might feel very personal and that it's saying, I don't believe that you can win because the country's sexist and the president is a misogynist and he will run a campaign that highlights that. And I think uh, it's possible that uh, Bernie um, said it in a way that was not meant that way and that over time, it's like a game of telephone, you know, they remember it differently. I'm not, Bernie is not my top choice, um, but I, you know, it doesn't strike me. And I think that what's unfortunate is we've, for them, both of them, but also for the Democratic Party, is we're, you know, we're, we're talking about this fight. We're rekindling some of the bad blood of 2016 unnecessarily. Um, you know, I have no insight into what they say, but I could imagine a circumstance where he's not exactly as articulate and she is hearing it from a position of a woman who's risen very high and has done it through a lifetime of battling through glass ceilings and, uh, you know, sexist expectations and the, and the unfair uh, way that we force women candidates to run for office. Well, my take on it also is that perhaps Bernie sensed some of the misogyny coming from his own supporters and had a, an epiphany. You know what? We're not mm -hmm. ready. <laughs> because the fact is a woman has never been elected president. So it seems to me the hypothetical is kind of... Uh, but I, I agree with you that um, both people could be Correct. Yeah, and I there, there, there's I have you know problems with Senator Sanders. I mean, he's not, again not my top choice. Although I would wholeheartedly support him if he were to be the nominee. Um, but having been a man having these conversations with women candidates, I suspect that I have not always come across the way that I should have. That you know, too blunt, not cognizant of my own privilege. 
and what that means and what it sounds like. That when you may be talking about the flaws in the system generically, but when you're talking to a candidate and it's very personal, it, it, it sounds differently. And I think we could all be cognizant of that. Now, maybe that's not what happened, but that's the benefit of the doubt that I'm giving to both parties because I respect them as leaders in the Democratic Party. All right, Trumpy Bear. What is it, and what does it say about American culture? Oh, my gosh. So I wrote a column about Trumpy Bear um, over the holidays. Uh, you know, I was watching, I think it was the, the History Channel or the Military Channel or one of those. I like World War II shows. And this long commercial came on for this stuffed animal Trumpy Bear. <laughs> and it is a teddy bear that looks sort of like Donald Trump with the, the, the flowing blonde hair. It literally has an American flag stuffed inside of it that you can take out, and the commercial begs you to wrap yourself in a flag. And I thought, this has got to be a put-on. This is a joke, right? This is, this is a skit. This is not what it looks like. But I went to the website. I read up on it. It's a real product. It was sold especially well during the holidays. And what it, what it made me realize is that I see this as a joke, as irony, as sarcasm, as satire satire, I guess. And, but for a certain segment of the population, this was a desirable gift that they wanted, that they wanted to wrap themselves. They wanted to put Trumpy Bear on the front of their Harley and, and, and drive down the street. That it, it wasn't an ironic type thing. And it, I wrote about it because it makes me think that if a Democrat or Republican conservative or liberal can look at a stuffed animal and see something completely different from each other, you know, what are the divides about real issues that are important, How, that we see the world so differently, that there's no common language or common truths that we find. And that's worrying. Well, in that column, I believe um, you said that um, political parity is dead. And so I guess my question is, who killed it? And if it was President Trump, in your view, does the crime, is it a high crime and misdemeanor? <laughs> well, how do, you make, how do you make fun of something that when the, the truth of the matter is beyond what your wildest dreams are? When you, I don't know if this is an experience that you've had on social media, but you're, you're flipping through your feed and you see a headline and you're wondering, is that the onion? Is that a satirical newspaper or is that a real headline? And you can't tell. You, 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 really have to, you really have to track it down. I mean, when the president tweets out an image of the Democratic leaders in Congress uh, dressed in, uh, you know, a wardrobe that is typical of, of folks who uh, practice Islam in front of an Iranian flag, I mean, that, you know, that's kind of that's bizarre. When you have, you know, senior White House uh, advisors arguing for the caging of children, well, that doesn't seem real, right? But that, that's the, the world we live in. Uh, you know, when we have the President of the United States calling people names, like kind of dopey schoolyard names, um, you know, how do you make a headline that's more outrageous than what's real right now? <laughs> well, David Farmer, thank you very much for being my guest, and I hope to have you back on the program. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>